Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, <clears throat> brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, www.courtroomsciences.com. I am Dr. Bill Kanaski, coming at you live from Phoenix, Arizona, 104 degrees yesterday. Um, gotta tell you, being from Florida with very high humidity, very, very bad. I'm drinking a bottle of this stuff, a bottle of water every 10 seconds. I mean, there's nothing like, like the sun's great, but there's nothing like waking up each morning. Uh, you can't breathe, your lips are chapped, your like tongue is stuck to the roof of your mouth. Uh, my fingertips are all peeling and cracking. I don't know how anybody could actually put up with this um, for the entire year. It, it's a very arid, uh, very arid uh, uh, type of uh, environment here. And uh, I'm okay with the humidity in Florida. I mean, with this head, you know, no hair, I'm okay with humidity. I have no problem with it. But boy, you miss a bottle of water, you know, per hour in Arizona, it's gonna come back to haunt you. That being said, let's get on with this um, <clears throat> very dry uh, podcast. Uh, this is gonna be another solo podcast. And I figured, let's go over some questions I've been getting. I've been getting some email questions, uh, some questions in person. This is kind of like uh, viewer mail uh, for lack of a better. So let's go over to the list here of questions. And these are all, these are all over the place, but I think they're very important questions uh, for attorneys. Okay, question number one, should I do my mock trial in the actual venue? What about confidentiality? Should I use real names uh, during the mock trial? Uh, this is a very valid question. I think the vast majority of mock trials that we do, we do in the actual venue. I think it's very important to be getting data and feedback from people in the actual county or counties if it's a federal case. Uh, I think it's vital uh, to get that. Um, in some instances, some instances, particularly a rural um, type of um, venue, where everybody knows everybody, yeah, I would say in that, um, I, would, I would say in that, uh, in, in, in that instance, uh, you may very well want to use a surrogate venue. You know, maybe something, you know, seventy-five to to hundred miles away uh, would be, I, I think, acceptable. But in, in the vast majority of cases, uh, in you know, if it's a it's a uh, middle, you know, medium-sized city. Uh, obviously, if it's urban, no, I think you do this in the venue because um, I think that's where you're going to get the most uh, validity and reliability. Um, I think it's very difficult to find a surrogate venue. I really, I really, really, really do. So I'd say stick with the venue that you're in, confidentiality. Um, I know in our cases, our mock jurors sign a, a very strict confidentiality waiver. Uh, some of our attorneys have wanted us to include an additional uh, NDA on top of that. So the attorneys offer that. We've never had a problem with confidentiality. Um, and from the beginning to the end of the project, I am constantly beating into their head the importance of confidentiality um, and what's going to happen if they if they break it. So um, in other words, yeah, I scare the shit out of them from moment one of the project and I carry on that fear all the way through the end. At the end, I get them on videotape, each one of them raising their hand saying, yes, I'm aware of the confidentiality. Trust me, we have we have no problems with confidentiality. Now, the last kind of sub question on this topic, should I use real names? Meaning 
the real identity, you know, do you use the real name of the plaintiff, the real name of the defendant, you know, or do you, do you try to camouflage or use, you know, use fake names? It doesn't work. You, <laughs> you try to change all the names and then one of you, one of the attorneys drops the real name by accident every time. Right. And or you try to say, you know, uh, ABC Medical Center instead of the real medical center. And then halfway through the project, the attorney, boom, drops the name. And then on all the exhibits, you got the real name. So I think you got to use the real names. And I think you want particularly with uh, if it's a corporate defendant, I think you really want to test the um, reputation of the defendant. Um, you know, you're doing this project, you got the confident confidentiality uh, contract in there. Why would you, I mean, what more spam calls right here, see? <clears throat> uh, you need to really test uh, uh, the reputation of the defendant in, in, in the vast majority of these cases, rather than hide it and see what people's experiences uh, have been with that defendant. I think that's one of the most important parts of mock trials. So, in some, yeah, do it in the venue the vast majority of the time. But if you have a special circumstance, particularly a very small venue, you, you may want to go out of town and try to get a similar venue with similar, with similar not just similar demographics, uh, but similar politics, similar population. Again, it's, 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 it's not an easy task. All right, question number two. Ah, my witness is blowing me off not returning phone calls or emails. What do I do? You know, this is probably your fault. Yeah, every witness, I mean, we're talking hundreds of witnesses a year. So many of them come into this process. They're scared shitless. And, you know, if you're just firing off emails or leaving voicemails or your assistant or your paralegal is, I, I wouldn't return your calls either. I mean, you're scared. You're scaring them. All right. And you probably did it up front. That's probably what's happening here. I've seen a lot of that where witnesses, they, they want to suppress, not repress, suppress anything related, meaning they're going to ignore emails, ignore all the letters you're sending them. Why? It's a, it's a negative stimulus. That's how our brain works, right? Neuropsychology, number one. Negative stimulus, get the hell away from it. How do you get away from it? Well, ignore it. Um, you got to be careful with how you handle your witnesses from day one and not come across like such an attorney. You scare them. I hate newsflash, newsflash. Nobody likes attorneys. If you have an attorney, an attorney involved in something, it's usually bad news, right? And so it's an automatic fear instinct that pops up. And so what you do is you have to schedule that first meeting with the witness or the first phone call. And boy, you need to really be nice. Take the threat out, explain to them the process here that you're gonna have to be following up and you don't mean to scare them. Ask for them, what's the best way to contact you? Then also maybe early on, address their fears, address their worries, okay? Let them know, hey, this is not some big, bad, evil attorney. You know, this is some of that that actually cares about me, okay? And you gotta, you gotta do that early because the moment if you start firing off letters, right, or emails or text messages, well, hell, I'm gonna ignore you too because you scared the crap out of me. All right. Question number three: I just got hit for a nuclear verdict. In my opening statement, I immediately started with the company commercial. 
because I wanted to humanize my client. We've heard a lot about this. Why did this backfire? Okay, I'm going to tell you exactly why it backfired. Now, number one, do you want to do the company commercial and humanize the client? Yeah, 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 100%. 100%. You don't do <laughs> you don't do that up front, silly. Okay? You save that towards the towards the middle or back end of your opening. This is what's called the primacy effect combined with this uh, bias, right? This bias, is, it's called the availability bias. So here's what happens. So plaintiff's counsel gets up, does a, let's say a 45 minute opening, butchers your defendant, <laughs> your client, just butchers them for 45 minutes. And then you're gonna stand up and start defending and start saying, no, 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 don't blame us. We're the nice company. You know, here, let me take you through the company history. Let me show you how the, the good people at ABC Corporation, no, that's weak sauce, okay? Weak sauce with capital W to start an opening. You start an opening with guns blazing, okay? Let me repeat that. You have to start an opening with guns. I see this mistake so often. Attorney comes up, I am so proud here to be uh, representing uh, Corporation ABC. And by the way, jury, jury, uh, jury service is a very important civil service, and we really appreciate you. You're wasting time, damn it. It's the most, God, I wrote, I wrote, the, I wrote a paper on this, okay? That first three to five minutes of your opening, it's vital. You come out guns blazing, number one. Number two, it's either alternative causation or you're blaming something or someone else. Maybe it's the planet. Maybe it's a co-defendant. Maybe it's an empty chair defendant. All right. Come out guns blazing because that's what the jury needs at that point. They've just heard 45 minutes of how bad of a company you are and they want to start assigning blame. You need to come out and give them something else to blame immediately. If you save that till the end, you've screwed it up, you've eliminated your primacy effect, and you do the company commercial first, well, now we have availability bias. What is availability bias? The, the, the party most available is most likely to get blamed. Well, if they've been talking about you for 45 minutes, you come out, you start talking about you, you just put yourself on trial. It happens so often. It's so, so particularly younger attorneys, you need to learn primacy. Call me about this. I'll send you the paper, primacy effect, and how to order information in your opening so you do not shoot yourself in the damn foot. All right. Moving straight forward here. All right, next question. Question number one, two, three, four. Um, <laughs> I love this one. My witness won't shut up and is trying to win the deposition in the prep sessions. Obviously, mock mock deposition. How do I stop this? Okay. You know, this is a big pet peeve of mine. Okay. Pivoting. Pivoting is very, very bad. Whoever teaches pivoting, right? This, I, I, I'm not saying a word. I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying it's a very, very bad habit. And well, first off, the, the witness brain is pre-wired to try to win it. They want to explain. Okay. Negative 
reinforcement. You have a persistent negative stimulus plaintiff attorney, right? We just talked about this on the last podcast. On the last podcast, we talked about this. And so what they want? They want to explain to get rid of the negative stimulus, right? So there's a there's a neuroscientific explanation for these explain. But if you're telling your witness to do that, obviously that's that's idiotic, okay? But witnesses need to understand. I just did this yesterday and back. I'm on the way to a witness prep today. And yesterday, I'm working with this physician. He's been a physician for 35 years. He's been deposed once. And that was a while ago. And so I'm preparing him for you know this, this new case. And I spent the day with him yesterday. And as I was walking out, he says, you know, Dr. Kanaski, I want to thank you. And I go, oh, it's, it's no problem. This is my job. He goes, you don't understand. He goes, I was so set on I had to defend myself during this deposition. I, my mind was so set that I had to protect my professional integrity and I had to take the fight to them. And you taught me I don't need to do that. I've got experts to do that. I've got defense attorneys to defend he says, what I need to do is exactly what you took. I need to embrace my conduct, embrace my care. The more I defend, the more problems I'm going to get in. And thank you for teaching me that. So I think this guy's going to have a good depth. But that's the, you, they have to know that up front is the more you defend, the worse it's going to get. The witness opens themselves up to far more counterattack, longer depositions. Okay, so this whole, well, you know, sir or ma'am, isn't it true on this particular day, you know, you did X. The, if it's factual, the answer is yes, I did, period. Not this, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, pivoting bullshit. Okay, it's dumb. I think it's unethical if you're an attorney to tell your witness to do that. Are you kidding me? They're going to step on a landmine. And, and plaintiff attorneys love it. Go call any plaintiff attorney right now and say, do you like it when defense witnesses argue with you? Oh, yeah. I love it because I know I'm going to win every time. Okay. Boy, now you got me all see. Ugh. <sighs> Trying to relax. Back to travel. And I'm getting questions like this. They're getting me all ramped up. All right. Question number five. We're going to end here. No, I think we got one more question. We got six questions. Question number five. My witness speaks little English. What is the best way to conduct witness prep with a translator? Ugh, let me tell you. And then throw Zoom into that. It's hard enough by itself. It is, it, I think with the translator, I've done this a hundred times. Um, it's really difficult. It really um, lengthens. It triples the length of the prep. So if you planned on a day of prep, well, now you got to plan on three days. You have to get a translator that actually knows what they're doing, somebody that you trust, hopefully someone that you've used before. Um, it's a bad position to be in. Now, it's not impossible, but you're going to have to triple the length of your prep. And here's the key. Here's the key, which is what I've seen, and it blew up in my face. That translator, that better be the translator that shows up at the deposition. If it's a different translator, you know, you've got different. I had one, um, you know, as a you know, Spanish speaking translator. And then at the, you know, they bring somebody else for the dep, 
and they speak in a different dialect. It's still Spanish, but it's like a different dialect. It's from a different area. It's, and then there's a lot of confusion. Um, it's a real, real pain. I just say, you're going to have to lengthen your prep. You're going to have to do whatever you can to make sure you have consistency in your translator so that something's not lost in translation during the real depth. Ugh, be very, very careful with that. Don't want any uh, nuclear verdicts because of a translator. All right, finally, we're going to wrap this up. Question number six and our final question in this podcast. Based on what you are seeing in your mock trials and focus groups, are churs angry in the post-COVID era? Um, they're, they're not angry. They're irate. Okay, turn, turn on the news. You've got um, people getting sucker punched on the street. You got... Uh, Employees knocking out customers and vice versa uh, in, in retail stores. You have full-on brawls on airplanes and in airports, okay? You have fans that are now back allowed into arenas spitting and throwing things at professional athletes consistently. Are people angry? They have lost their minds, folks. Yeah, they're angry. Hell, I'm angry. I'm a jury consultant. I'm angry. Yeah, people are angry. And so we're going to have to be very, very careful uh, moving forward here on how you, that's, this is why the mock trials and focus groups are so important to get a read on people in your venue and, and where people currently are. All right. Like what you knew about your jury pool, right, in 2019, I don't think that carries over into today. Okay. This is why. Focus grouping these things is going to be so important. Mock trial is going to be so important. And then you're going to have to change your voir dire and jury selection. That's a that's an entirely different podcast. But you're going to have to gauge where your jurors are emotionally. Because obviously, if you have a bunch of angry jurors, right, on your on your panel, that's not helping you. That's not helping your client. That's what's going to lead to a nuclear verdict. So we're going to have to address those things. All right. That's enough for today. Uh, another solo podcast for you because I'm on the road. Um, I hope everybody is doing well out there, getting back to work, getting back to travel. And um, we've got a special podcast coming up. I'm not even going to give you a hint about this, but it's coming up in the next couple of weeks. And I'm just going to say it has to do with something huge that's happening, that's about to happen. Happening, yeah. We're, we're early uh, in the transportation industry. So just a little hint out there. So until uh, until then, uh, thank you for participating in this week's uh, edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. I'm Dr. Bill Kanaski. See you next time.